You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals and employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Cuando llegue a tu ventana el murmurio de la brisa, pregúntale, poetisa, quien por ti le preguntó. When at your window comes the murmur of a breeze, inquire, poetess, who is asking about you. These verses form the concluding stanza, the tender goodbye, of a dedication poem between 19th century Latina poetisas, one from Central America and one from California. My name is Vanessa Ovaya Perez. And I'm Sarah Skillen, and this is our podcast, Dedicatoria Istas, Poetic Exchange Among Trans-Hemispheric Latinas. We will explore the Spanish language dedication poems of 19th century Latinas who exchanged verse in, across, and outside the borders of the United States. One of such poetic conversations begins in September of 1875, when the Panamanian poet Amelia Denise writes a dedicatoria, or dedication, to the San Francisco poet Señorita Carlota S. Gutierrez in the San Salvador newspaper La América Central. After reading a reprint of the poem from a Los Angeles newspaper, the Mexican-American poet Carlota responds to Denise, dedicating a poem a la inspirada poetisa colombiana Amelia Denise on May 17, 1876. This type of exchange follows a rich tradition of Latinas corresponding through verse in Latin America. To show this, we will read the canonical Cuban poet Gertrudis Gómez de Avianeda as a precursor, especially her poem Romance Contestando a Otro de una Señorita, from January of 1846. In this poem, Gómez de Avianeda sets a pattern, or patrón, of feminine and feminized critique and correspondence that vacillates between the public and private. Not only do these exchanges pass a kind of proto-Bechtel test, but we assert that the dedication poems of Denise Gutierrez and Avellaneda also present a gendered performance of the Ars Poetica, whether in solidarity or in dialogue that teases out differences in defining female empowerment and creative expression, the verses stage conversations between women on the subject of artistic production. They do so in the public space of the 19th century Spanish language press, and thus before an audience of silent male interlocutors. We have invited three contemporary Latina poets, Liana Bravo, Lucy Cristina Chao, and Vanessa Villarreal, to offer their comments and perform readings in Spanish and English of dedication poems by the 19th century poetisas who we will be discussing. As Latina scholars and writers ourselves, we intend for our collaboration to be a performative dialogue between Latinas of past and present and between languages, Spanish and English. We understand translation as a dialogue with the text, and in a similar way to these dedicatorias, we approach the text and offer response in our translations. So Sarah, uh, I was hoping you could begin since uh, Villaneda is a poetisa that is kind of a forebearer to so many other Latino 
Latina and Latin American poets. So how did you become interested in her? And can you tell us a little bit more about her? Absolutely. First came across Hectorius Gomez de Arianeda through my family. My great-grandmother was a teacher in Cuba and read Avianeda widely. She found her to be a great inspiration. And then when I began my graduate research, one of my professors redirected me towards her. And in 2014, I actually went to Cuba to attend a conference on her bicentennial. But she's a fascinating character. She was one of the kind of first, what we can call like sort of a proto-feminist. She also wrote the first Spanish language abolitionist novel, Saab. It's also one of the earliest abolitionist novels. And then her poetry and her also just her public persona were a huge source for women's emancipation and women's activity in the public sphere. But she was born in Cuba, in the most central part of the island, Camagüey, on March 23rd, 1816. Her father was in the Navy, and her mother came from a very wealthy, well-known family. There's a really interesting entry on her in the Universal Dictionary of History and Geography, which was published in Mexico, in which they imply that she only ever enjoyed playing men's roles, and they write, quote, all of the maternal forces never succeeded in interesting her in the labors of her sex, neither were they strong enough to overcome her ardent passion for poetry and theater. <laughs> That's really funny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what year was that dictionary from? It was, its first edition was published in 1853, uh, or in 1846, the second edition was published in 1853. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and of course she was still alive to see this, and many of her detractors at the time would often come at her for not being appropriately feminine, according mm. to the moral codes of the yes, time. Yes, a marimacho. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and um, yes, one of her, one of the most famous lines was, es mucho hombre, esa mujer. And, this, and that's a, mm -hmm. she's very manly, that woman. Yeah, she's a lot of man, that woman. Ah, uh, yes, a yes. lot of man. <laughs> but she was, you know, a, this fascinating character. She um, turned down her first offer of marriage while she was living in Cuba and then actually was disinherited for it. And regardless, she continued on with her life. She moved to Spain, where she lived briefly with her stepfather's family. Her father died when she was nine, and she was, you know, deeply saddened by this. And her stepfather was never quite a father to her and always kind of looked down on her for her interest in literature. And in 1836, she departed Cuba for Spain and went to go live with her stepfather's family, who made fun of her, calling her La Lautora, the lady doctor. And she lived there for almost two years and then finally left with her brother and moved to Sevilla and began publishing. She had, one of the things she's most known for are her many affairs. She had a child out of wedlock with Gabriel Garcia Tassara. And during that affair is when she wrote the poem that we'll be uh, talking about today, where she talks about women's creativity and feminine creativity and interestingly challenges a lot of the feminine stereotypes and tropes that she's being pinned into. So before we launch into the reading by Liana Bravo of Avellaneda, I'm curious if you have more to say about Avellaneda as kind of a transnational or transatlantic Latina figure, because I know she did circulate quite a bit between Latin America, the United States, and Europe. Of course. You know, I mean, apart from being read and published in Latin America and the United States, 
as you can see in things like the Diccionario, which we talked about earlier, which was um, published and distributed throughout Mexico. She also, you know, herself really felt this pull between these continents. Um, one of her most read and most well-known poems is called Al Partir, or Upon Leaving, which she wrote as she was leaving Cuba. And it's kind of, you know, in it she's lamenting leaving this, you know, the perla, the pearl of her childhood home behind and going to live in the metropole and the continent. So you see this kind of reflected today in the Latinx experience, this sort of longing and lamenting for uh, her home, for where she grew up. And then later on, at the same time that she's writing and publishing the romance that we'll be talking about, she is also responding to a poem by Doña Luisa de Francia Alfaro, who was a a uh, fairly famous Cuban poet herself, and who critiques uh, Avianeda in a poem for not being sufficiently Cuban and having perhaps even forgotten about Cuba. She does so in a, you know, rather kind way in responding to talking about her as this melodious bird or saying that Cuba laments and weeps your absence and asks her to come and shine again on the Indian plains. Oh, kind, but also very shady. It is, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know, so going with Avianella definitely feels herself called out in this in this poem, you know, that suddenly her uh, belonging to Cuba, her love for her island is being very publicly questioned. And this is happening kind of amongst a lot of Cuban intellectuals and the literary elite. And she responds to this in kind of an ambiguous way, you know, asking why to the Indian Plains, do you wish me, do you wish my austere harp to exhale the final vibrations of my pain? You see kind of what we've already talked about this, like the melody, the sonic quality of her poem. And she did finally at some point later in her life, when her mother became very real, because her mother still lived in Cuba, Gomez de Aviana traveled back with her second husband, Domingo Verdugo y Maceu, to go visit her mother and to be with her in her final days. At the time, Gomez de Avianeta's husband was a Spanish diplomat, and this was actually viewed very, very poorly on the island, where Cuba had been fighting a war for independence for decades. And she was criticized and, again, questioned for... Her, about her patriotism, about her love for Cuba, which, you know, she always maintained. And then she did spend time in the United States, right? She did, actually. So, sadly, her husband died in Cuba. She was married twice, never for very long. Her husband died in Cuba, and upon his death, she at first wanted to enter a convent, but then that didn't work out. So then she left Cuba and traveled to the United States, and there she was really impressed by New York, by Washington, and by Niagara Falls. This was in 1864, and she wrote a, um, a couple of odes to Washington and Niagara Falls, just really uh, marveling in the grandiosity and this sweeping modernity that was kind of beginning to affect all of Latin America, in which you see a lot of poets at the time echoing this kind of reverence, but also a little bit of fear of the United States as this, you know, growing powerhouse. So it's it's interesting to kind of reflect upon the way she was read and also the way she is reading her place within Latin America and Latin American litters and the Americas in general. Great. So I guess that brings us to Avellaneda's poem. Could you tell us a little bit about Liana Bravo, the poet that is going to read Avellaneda's poem? 
Absolutely. So Liana Bravo will be reading Romance Contestando a Otro de Una Señorita by Gertrudis Gomez Avianel, written in 1846 and published in 1850. Liana is a graduate of journalism and audiovisual communications from the University Carlos III Madrid. She began writing poetry when she was nine and won her first national literary contests in Cuba at 11 and 14 years old. In 2018, she published her first book of poetry, Poemas Perdidos with Editorial Torremosas, which specializes in poetry and narratives written by women. So we'll listen to that now. Poema Contestando a Otro de una Señorita, de Gertrudis Gómez de Avellaneda. Me dice Tula mi madre, y mis amigos la imitan. Prescinde, pues, te lo ruego, de las afos y corinas, y simplemente me nombra Gertrudis, Tula o amiga. Amiga, sí, que aunque tanto contra tu sexo te indignas, y de maligno lo acusas, y de envidioso lo tildas, canto porque al cielo plugo, darme el estro que me anima, como dio brillo a los astros, como dio al orbe armonías. Canto porque hay en mi pecho secretas cuerdas que vibran, a cada efecto del alma, a cada azar de la vida. Our decision to include Avellaneda's poem or selections from her poem in Spanish was just to give you listeners a sense of the rhythm and the sound of her verses and her poetic style. I think it's really nice that we have Liana Bravo, who is a Cuban poet and has the accent of a Cuban poet, though it is a, a 21st century accent, to really help us hear that. Because as you'll hear, the Cuban accent that Bravo has is very different from the other poets that are going to be doing readings that we'll hear later on. Yeah, and so she picks a really interesting few stanzas here to read, mostly because they're kind of an injunction and address that Getruis Gomez de Avianeda was making to the woman receiving this poem at the time. And so Liana's responding, but also being addressed as we are by this poem. So um, a quick translation, uh, the parts she read go, Getruis is my name with which I was baptized. Tula, my mother calls me, and her my friends imitate. Dispense with, I beg you, the Sappho's and Corinne's, and simply call me Hetrudis, Tula, or friend. Friend, yes, even though against your sex you disgrace yourself, and as evil you accuse us, and as invidious you label us. I sing as the bird sings, as the tree branches sway, as fountains murmur, as the auras sigh. I sing because it pleased heaven to give me the asterisk that animates me, like it gave light to the stars, like it gave harmony to the orbits. I sing because there exists in my breast secret chords that vibrate at every feeling of my soul at every chance of life. So it's this really interesting dedication poem that she writes to an unnamed um, recipient. And she does refer to this woman in a couple of her letters to one of her lovers. But in it, she addresses her asking her not to treat her as a goddess, not to treat her as something lofty and divine, but rather as a friend with whom she can have a frank conversation, who she can call Tula, which was her nickname and which many people still use today. So we are also responding and adhering to this, to her call, to her injunction and her plea. One of the things that you also see being played with here is what Susan Kirkpatrick calls the lyrical sisterhood, which was at this time in Spanish language literature, women were beginning to write to each other very intentionally through 
publications, through the press, through their published poetry. In this, they created a space for women to be a little bit more critical of their 19th century society, of the constraints that were upon women and also the literary constraints that they found themselves in. And you see this also in Avianeda referring to Sappho and to Corinne, who Sappho being a sixth century poet, the first female poet from the island of Lesbos, and Corinne being a reference to Madame de Stael's uh, 1807 novel. And in these, she's kind of intervening in the canon and also, again, sort of remixing it and making it her own and allowing women this, this space to be more critical of romanticism and of patriarchal society. You know, in a way, you see it more lightly with Gertrudis Gomez de Avianeda than you do with Amelia Denise and Carlota um, Gutierrez, in which it is so clear and so direct. Something I noticed that was really striking to me was that Avianeda uses lines that are really similar to the poets that I'm looking at, Carlota Gutierrez and Amelia Denise. She says, I sing as the bird sings, as the tree branches sway, as fountains murmur, as the auras sigh. So what's really interesting is I have a lot of that type of vocabulary, the birds singing, the sound of murmuring. In the case of uh, Denise and Gutierrez, they, they refer to the murmur of the breeze from our introduction, <laughs> the introductory lines that we read. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of this? What do you make of sound? And we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but... In some ways, they are, these are conventions, right, of romantic poetry. But on the other hand, they are, they're making them their own. They're identifying with nature, but also taking, I think, a lot of ownership of this sound. And in it, that's where their, their dialogue takes place. And I think that that comes off most dramatically in the verses that we read at the beginning, but in the whole exchange that is going on between Amelia Denise and Carlota Gutierrez. And so I'd love to hear more about how you came across these poems and about these women and how they found each other and how they found what they were writing. Yes, because it's interesting. They have a very lively dialogue that we listen in on or read in on now, but they never actually met each other face to face, at least in the case of Carlota Gutierrez and Amelia Denise, I don't have any evidence that they ever met face to face. And I still don't really know how Amelia Denise came across or became familiar with the work of uh, the San Francisco poetisa Carlota Gutierrez. I do know that she lauds her work and her dedication to her and that she prompts their kind of brief exchange on September 22nd, 1875 in the San Salvador newspaper, La America Central. And then what happens is seven months later, Denise's poem is reprinted in Los Angeles by the editor of La Cronica. And from there, those reprints must reach San Francisco, Carlota Gutierrez's home, where she reads the poem, it's very well received, and she responds one month later, again in La Cronica of Los Angeles, titling a poem to Denise, to the inspired poetisa Amelia Denise. And that's printed on May 17, 1876. What's interesting about these two very different poets is that Denise is this figure that is canonical in Panama. She's born in Panama City, but she moves throughout Central America throughout her life. You know, she 
publishes this poem to Carlota in San Salvador, right? And she actually lived her later years in Nicaragua. She printed in many newspapers. She had many different types of dedication poems. She would dedicate poems to male political leaders and important figures, generals. She would dedicate poems to places that were important to her. And she would dedicate poems to family members um, that were much more intimate. Later, an anthology of her works would be published after her death. And if anyone's interested in checking that out, it's called Hojas Secas, or Dry Leaves. But despite having spent much of her life traveling throughout Central America, she is really just this figure that has been kind of co-opted by nationalist, republican projects in Panama to the point that on what would have been her 100th birthday, her remains were exhumed from her grave in Managua, Nicaragua and brought to Panama City. So in my, in my larger project, I actually look at how her corpse and her corpus are sort of inscribed with a symbolic dedication to Panama. <laughs> <laughs> And for now, I'll simply say that Gutierrez, who in her poem describes Denise as a treasure of inconceivable value to her country, could not have been more prescient in that observation. That's really fascinating. Yeah, that she becomes a treasure in almost a tangible sense. Yes, Yeah. <laughs> very much so. And I'll tell you a little bit about Gutierrez yeah. as well. Gutierrez is a California poetisa who has not been studied before, to my knowledge. I've searched so hard for clues about her biography. From studying the U.S. Census report, I found that she was born in Mexico. She resided in a middle-class household, that she also worked as a telegraph operator when she was 18 years old for a few years, and then kind of transitioned to becoming a Spanish teacher. She ran her own business as a Spanish teacher and even published classified advertisements in the San Francisco Chronicle, an English-language newspaper, from at least 1879 through 1880. And what's really interesting is that in these American and English language newspapers and records, you know, the census, the San Francisco Chronicle, the city directories, you can tell that she is this working woman with demanding jobs in terms of education, skill, self-direction. But when it comes to editorials, society reporting, and poetry published in Latinx newspapers, you get a very different picture of her. So in the Mexican-American or Latinx community, she was considered a socialite, a traveler, she was a rising poet, and she definitely had literary aspirations outside of her day job, so to speak. That's really fascinating hearing about how they found each other and the individual literary lives that they were leading. I would love to hear some of Amelia Denise's poetry, which will be read now by Lucy Cristina Chao. Uh, Vanessa, can you tell us a little bit about her? Yes, so Lucy Cristina Chao is a Panamanian poet who has won numerous awards. And her publications include the books of poetry Mujeres Odiosas, Women or Goddesses, La Casa Rota, The Broken House, and La Virgen de la Cueva, The Virgin of the Cave. Currently, she's a professor and researcher at the University of Panama and a translator. She co-organizes the Festival Internacional de Poesía Ars Amandi in Panama and writes a weekly column in the newspaper El Siglo. Wonderful, let's listen. A la señorita Carlota S. Gutiérrez. 
Primorosa pasionaria, flor del mexicano suelo, que recibiste del cielo la sublime inspiración. Tú cantaste como canta la vecilla lastimera, lloraste niña hechicera por tu primera ilusión. Pero escucha si padeces por una ilusión perdida, si llevas el alma herida, hay otro Edén para ti. Dulcísima criatura, privilegiada cantora, hay un alma que te adora y que tu alma comprendió. Cuando llegue a tu ventana el murmurio de la brisa, pregúntale, poetiza, ¿quién por ti le preguntó? Amelia Denis, Acajutla, septiembre 8 de 1875. So now I'm going to read the dedication poem from Amelia Denise to Carlota Escutieres in English, and this is my translation. Passion Primrose, flower of Mexican soil, who received from heaven the sublime inspiration. You sang how sings the sorrowful little bird. You cried, girl sorceress, for your first illusion. But listen if you suffer for an illusion lost. If you carry a wounded soul, there is another Eden for you, a privileged Eden where hope dwells. I found it, lady, and in my dreams I saw it. When you have a lyre of present beautiful God, it carries with it a world in the mind and a heaven in the heart. One who has that wealth, even if singing sorrows, finds flowers in their path, profusely watered. Happy is one who lives, who sings with a gold lyre, You have that treasure, American Trupial. Close your eyes and look, beautiful creations. The soul has illusions in another immortal world. Sweetest creature, privileged lady singer, there is a soul that adores you and that your soul understood. When arriving at your window, the murmur of a breeze, inquire, poetess, who was asking about you? It's great to return to those... Uh last verses there. I think it's really interesting the way they are building and playing, or the way Amelia Denise is building and playing with this feminine genius and inspiration and building this Ars Poetica. Yes, so I feel like the Ars Poetica comes out in describing that kind of sublime inspiration. Denise elaborates on the act of artistic creation when she She talks about closing your eyes and looking at the most beautiful creations. She says the soul has illusions in another immortal world. She's playing upon that tension between visual seeing and the visionary imagining of the soul. So for her, the soul is this organ of visionary imagining. And that's something we're going to see with Gutierrez as well. I mean, Gutierrez's poem, she talks about a kind of eureka moment of inspiration, a fortunate or fatal moment in which she has this grand thought mm -hmm. and her soul is dreaming. So what's beautiful there is that we can read this as a sort of feminine ars poetica that doesn't necessarily focus on the principles related to poetic decorum or value, but rather on the very fodder of thought from which poetry is conceived. So we see Amelia Denise beginning this conversation with Carlota Gutierrez where they're bonding over their identities of poets and in this bonding they seem to be expressing a certain solidarity. 
We saw this arise also in the comments by Liana Bravo and Lucy Cristina Chao, where they talk about the concept of sororidad, or sisterhood. We'll begin with Liana Bravo's comments on Gertrudis Gómez de Avianeda. Gertrudis Gómez de Avellaneda, además de ser un referente de la poesía cubana y, y latinoamericana, creo que también ha sido una precursora de, del feminismo, de la sororidad, ese concepto que es nuevo pero que evidentemente ella lo, lo, lo ponía en práctica y lo, y lo pensaba así, ¿no? y así lo se quedaba reflejado en sus poemas. Liana says, and I will translate, quote, In addition to being a model of Cuban and Latin American poetry, Gertrudis Gómez de Avellaneda is also, I think, a precursor of feminism and of sororidad a concept which is new, but clearly she put this into practice and thought about it as such, which we see reflected in her poems. Lucy Cristina Chao also notices sisterhood popping up in Denise's poem, and she makes these comments. Hay una muestra de empatía por el sufrimiento, pero esta muestra de empatía se va un poquito más allá. O sea, le declara una sororidad en el sentido de que sabe lo que sufrió, pero con una, como si tuviera una mayor experiencia, le dice que algo mejor viene para ella. O sea, utiliza esta, esta palabra, le dice el Edén. Now I'll translate Lucy's comments into English. She says, quote, There is a demonstration of empathy for her suffering. But this show of empathy goes a little further in that it declares a certain sororidad, sisterhood, in the sense that she knows what she suffered, but as if she had a greater experience. And she tells her that something better is coming to her. She uses this word, she says, Eden. Listening to these poems just now and the responses from our poets, I was really struck by the way that this sisterhood is built and their empathy is built through sound. There's all this language of sound and music that's arising. And I wonder if this was something that you were thinking about that seemed interesting to you. Yes, I feel like it is a very sonic kind of sisterhood. It comes out even more when Denise is talking about the lyre too, the lyre of beautiful present God, carrying with it a world in the mind and a heaven in the heart. So sound is linked to creativity. It becomes kind of this lever of thought. And it is also tied to this sensual connection that they imagine between one another. They're kind of imagining the sound of one another's voice and vocal expression. And this kind of eureka moment becomes a sort of sensual encounter. So as we saw with Avellaneda thinking about sound, for Denise and Gutierrez, you have this eureka moment that is, is something they kind of capture and share through their voices or these voices that are being transmitted in verse and that they kind of characterize in this very sonic way. You know, you have Gutierrez going really deep into the sonic metaphors. Mm -hmm. We're going to hear in the next poem how she kind of asks urgent questions towards Denise. She says things like, Who are you? Tell me. Who has learned to understand my soul? Why does the echo of your angelic voice make me ecstatic? And that, you know, can be compared to what's happening with Denise when Denise compares Gutierrez to a sorrowful little bird and privileged lady singer. You have this kind of textual sound space that's being explored. 
And it's being explored in this really gendered way. In the 19th century, these were kind of cliched metaphors when it came to women as singers and songstresses. Eliza Richards writes about this when she's comparing the poetesses in Edgar Allan Poe's circle and how they were portrayed as kind of fonts of unmediated emotions or sort of nightingales with harp-like hearts who couldn't help but sing. And so in that way, as Eliza Richard puts it, their poems were kind of cast as identical offspring, incarnations of the poetess's intimate feelings. And so on many levels, Denise and Gutierrez sort of internalize and recapitulate the typecast of emotional songstress, and they incorporate the imagery of Ave singers and instruments to kind of describe themselves and one another. But I would say they push it further. They push these sonic metaphors further, and they're, they're doing kind of more interesting work. Where I think the this uh, the sonic metaphors perform a kind of more interesting function is in that it connotes this kind of this proximity that doesn't exist. It's wholly imagined, you know. So yes. the idea of being able to hear each other, of hearing the harp and the lyre, it's this imagined proximity when in truth they're separated by you know a continent and the ocean. Yes, and proximity and solidarity kind mm -hmm. of go hand in hand. So that kind of imagined proximity through voice becomes part of that imagined solidarity the solidarity that they have based on both being Latinas and also both being women, you know, this, this kind of feminine solidarity that they build. And it's interesting too because when you have these metaphors with voice and sound, it reminds you that as a listener or as a reader, <laughs> you're always overhearing you know, and it makes you feel like you're kind of overhearing this intimate conversation between two women. It just kind of reminds you of the kind of incalculable, incalculable kind of resonance and incalculable mm -hmm. audiences across time and space that can be listening in. Absolutely. That we're having this conversation really speaks to that. Now we will listen to Carlota Escutierrez's response to Amelia Denise. Vanessa, will you introduce our next poet reader? Yes, so our next and final poet reader is Vanessa Angelica Villarreal. She was born in the Rio Grande Valley borderlands to formerly undocumented Mexican immigrants and is author of the collection Beast Meridian, which won the John A. Robertson Award for Best First Book of Poetry from the Texas Institute of Letters. Vanessa is a Cantu Mundo Fellow and is currently pursuing her doctorate in English Literature and Creative Writing at the University of Southern California. To the inspired Colombian poetess, Amelia Denise. Soul that is beautiful, heroic, and pure, of the Lord's ample work, the ideal of any poet, faithful model of virtue. You, indulgent, have heard my sad and uncertain sounds and sublime vibrations. You praise me with your lute. Who are you? Talk to me. What have you known to understand my soul? Why does this echo make me ecstatic from your angelic voice? From what bird did you steal the sweetness of your accent that awakens feeling in an already inert breast? 
Colombia, your homeland, which I adore as I do Mexico, in you possesses a treasure of inconceivable value. Those delicious notes that modulate your throat, the zephyr raises them to the throne of God. If I could for an instant like you pluck a lyre, how would you know your song has inspired my mind? But it only pleased the eternal in a splendorous or fatal moment to give me a grand thought and a soul to dream. But it is unfair to complain because at least in my dreams, I realize sweet fantasies that my mind conceived chaste fantasies that for a moment flattered my soul and how fast they flew leaving my calm behind but i do not cry for a disenchantment or even for a lost illusion no my illusion has life a perennial life the tyrannical law of the world i banished it from this earth and it went to dwell in heaven my hope remains there for your absence, I grieve and cry, but I hear a voice that says that I can still be happy, that this life has an end, that Eden of hope, like you, sublime songstress, I too possess it now. And although I suffer, I am happy. Thank you for your beautiful reading. Vanessa. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> tell me, what what are your kind of first impressions? These are so queer. I love how they are not aware of this, like, way of speaking to each other that um, is hemmed in by, uh, like, society, you know, or societal expectations. Um, there's, like, an intimacy and this sort of like communal with the divine in each other. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, there was this moment where Carlota says, I realize sweet fantasies that my mind has conceived. And she like almost self-corrects, like chase fantasies. But I think she only does that so that like there's this acknowledgement that their interaction is like one of mutual artistic appreciation, but that still doesn't change like that queer tenor, that queer vibe, which yes. I love. And I think it's just like this incredible expression of love and admiration that is free of male validations. I think um, you brought up something really interesting by talking about the the chaste fantasy earlier and this kind of kind of homosociality that's occurring there and Jonathan Goldberg writes on 19th century male homosociality and how amongst men their homosocial bonds and relationships had to be um, he writes defended against its own homoerotics and I find it so interesting that and usually in the 19th century amongst men that took the form of you know, writing obliquely about women or about romantic love. And it's so interesting here that between these women, the homosocial, this almost, yeah, almost queer, almost, um, you know, this adoration that's taking place maybe refers to the divine as a way of eliding anything that, any sort of um, improper female relationship, even though it is occurring, even though we do see that tension definitely being played with, I think. And that's something especially true when we're talking about these Latinas that are 
on one side of the border, we have Carlota Gutierrez that is writing from this colonized space. When she's referred to as Flor de Mexicano Suelo or the flower of Mexican soil, that's interesting because she's not on Mexican soil, right? And of course, Amelia Denise knows this when she says it to Carlota Gutierrez and when she describes her this way, she knows that either that's a flor that's been picked from the Mexican soil and kind of brought to the United States, or that's a flor that, that is on some kind of contested earth. And so maybe too, we could talk about this kind of transnational connection because in addition to the connection that you have with these poets as as a mexican-american or chicana poet across time there's also this relationship in space you mm -hmm. know between these women having this transnational connection and crossing borders north and south i don't know i think borders sort of run through all of us in uh, these like really traumatic ways and, you know, I think it's so interesting that you were talking earlier about how Carlota um, was living on this land post the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So the land itself, it switched colors, switched sides yes. um, underfoot. And then to, I wonder what it must have been like for Carlota to hear herself acknowledged as a flor de Mexicano suelo in this way that is so, you know, it's in print, it's so concrete, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like, oh, I don't know what to call you, conquered woman in San Francisco, are you Mexican, are you American, are you Mexican hyphenated, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's this kind of beautiful metaphor that Denise puts out there instead that affirms her identity in a certain way, mm -hmm. uh, her cultural identity. Yeah, especially in Cuban works right now, there's a lot of uh, pushback against claiming or the desire to claim an identity other than that of the colonizer, other than Spanish identity, which is curious when you consider, you know, that a lot of, you know, for instance, with Gomez de Avianeda, she is claiming, she's trying to reclaim a certain Cuban belonging and how do people see themselves? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have someone like Carlota Gutierrez that is in America, so I can properly study her as an mm -hmm. Americanist, but at the same time, she's looking south. She's expressing mm -hmm. this sense of Latinidad, or Latin American solidarity with this woman that's in Panama, or at the time living in San Salvador. They're expressing these solidarities based on this kind of American, but in the expansive North-South American sense, mm -hmm. rather than an East-West American sense. Mm. So, the um, Manifest Destiny American uh, yes, sense. Yes, the Manifest Destiny American sense. I love that. I have a line in my book about, um, it's in a poem called Porn Woman Ancestor, and it talks about this like feeling of always having two faces, always looking North as one looks South, because oh. looking North is like about looking after one's own survival but looking south is like looking for the past and looking for self yeah. um and i just feel like that's such a that's such a tension all, at all times and you know when you think of like two-faced like what it means to be two-faced in history what it means to be two-faced in literature is to be this traitor and that's the malinche yes. right the, the malinche will always be the traitor 
of her people. We would love to hear the line of your poem oh. if you would like to read it and include it on on the podcast. I mean, you don't have to, of course. But no, I mean, we would love that. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it just it's called Horn Woman Ancestor, and the line I was thinking of was, um, and after the atrocity, my daughters will walk along the palm of God's hand to find me. I will know you by your heavy horns and two faces to look always south as you look north to survive this nightmare so American where you count coins you do not have. Oh my gosh, chills. <laughs> Thank That's, you. That just resonates so much with, you know, this looking north and south and the horned woman also oh wow thank you thank you <laughs> so this concludes our podcast and we want to thank you for joining us today on this trans hemispheric and trans historical journey thank you so much for joining us and if you were listening closely you might have heard some ocean sounds in there and sounds of waves crashing those are sounds that we recorded here in los angeles county and also in charleston south carolina so they come from the Pacific and the Atlantic, and we wanted to include those sounds just as a reminder of the journeys that the poetry itself made across these different oceans, and also as a reminder to think about sound waves. Uh, we had you know, really good conversation about how these different poetisas conceptualized voice and rhythm and sound in their work. Yes, we have seen how for Gomez de Denise, and Gutierrez, their poetry opened a space for women to move within the public sphere, within this literary space that was previously foreclosed to them. So thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll leave you with some beautiful ocean sounds and say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.